So coming in as instructors or staff, they're afraid of certain terms. Like, so pedagogy is scary. And so we introduce it to them in such a way that it feels accessible. And I think that a lot of our research is really working on making sure that this field is available to them, right? You can do this. It's not as intimidating as terminology makes it sound. And maybe this goes back to that idea of the lack of shared definition of open education. Because of its ambiguity, people can find it difficult to break into. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. We officially are putting a ban on Brad that he's not allowed to tell jokes on the show. So I think you'll see next week that he'll break that pretty quick. But I just wanted to throw that in there for the listeners that have asked me to kindly ask Brad to just stop with the jokes. Did you know that, Brad? You canceled, right? That's yeah. what this is? I'm yeah, being canceled? yes, exactly. <laughs> We are so excited because Rad and I are professional development folks in higher ed, and we're welcoming two additional people who work in that field to the podcast who are a dynamic duo, just like we are, or I should say, as we aspire to be. So we're welcoming to the show Katie Williams and Eric Wirth. Dr. Katherine Williams is the professional development educator at the University of Pikeville. She completed her PhD in sustainability education in 2022, focusing on disruption of neoliberal and colonial ideologies in undergraduate faculty. She also researches open pedagogy as a means to disrupt inequity in higher education. Catherine also holds a Master of Science in Education in Learning Design and Technology and a Master of Arts in Library and Information Science. Dr. Eric Wirth is the Professional Development Manager at the University of Pikeville. In this position, he works with faculty on improving student learning using technology, engaging instruction, and open practices. Eric has a doctoral degree in teaching and learning, a master's in microbiology, and holds a secondary teaching certification. In higher education, Eric has served several roles, including e-learning director, director of a center for online and blended learning, teaching and learning coordinator, and now professional development manager. Eric has taught college-level courses in algebra, statistics, research methods, and on inquiry-based learning. His research efforts have included work on problem-based learning and blended education, use of open educational resources, open pedagogy, and waste management in rural communities. Please join us in welcoming to the Digital to Learn podcast, Katie Williams and Eric Worth. Welcome, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. And also, Eric. Glad you're here, Eric. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. As you heard from their intro, these professionals are engaged in research and writing, and I'm going to comment a little later. I'll I'll put them on the spot about something that I found that they put together that I just think is the neatest tool, a student content curated resource. I'm just so impressed with everything that they do, the creativity and, and the scholarship. But before we dive into that serious stuff, we always want to start with the getting to know you section. So Brad, I'm going to pass it on to you. First question. What books are you reading at the current time? I'm one of those people who do a lot more reading with reports and articles because I'm just interested in a lot of things. And I find that there's just so much out there now that I bounce from place to place and find all kinds of interesting articles. Uh, I am reading a book called Noise by Daniel Kahneman. Um, It talks about 
decision-making and the variability in decision-making in individuals and organizations and what impact that may have on those organizations and group dynamics. Interesting. I have to admit that for myself, I just finished up my PhD. So I've had like three or four hard years of nonstop academic reading. So I'm in the process of rereading David Weber's Honor Harrington series. It's a sci-fi series, one of my favorite book series though. Whenever I need a brain break, I go back and I start from the beginning and read up to where he's released. He's like George R. R. Martin whenever it comes to releasing things though. So it's like four to eight years between anything. I've got a lot of material before I'm going to catch myself back up to <laughs> where new material needs to come out. So that's an awesome reward for yourself to finish your PhD and then jump into the sci-fi world. Like, I'm so happy that you chose to do that. It's needed. <laughs> Thank you. So follow-up question, are you ebook readers or hard copy book readers? I'm a hard copy reader. I do have some ebooks that I read and I'll read on my iPad, but I like the tangibility of a physical book. That was true of my PhD too. Yeah, I do have regular hard copy books, but I actually do more reading on my phone or on a digital device. I just find the portability to be so much easier. You know, hard to carry around a book, all the different places I am, but you know, anywhere I'm at, I have my phone and I find reading a fiction or nonfiction work, I can jump into that with just a few minutes and get a couple pages in. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners, I want you to know that we're kind of easing into this, but we want our guests today to get into a raging argument about something. So <laughs> keep putting out these thoughts to see what they bite on. That's amazing. Oh, shifting gears a little bit. We'll see if we can get in controversy here. Who is your biggest career influence? Interesting question, because it's surprisingly my biggest career influence at this point is someone who actually works at the institution here. A very dear friend of mine, Matthias Meyer, got me into the conversations that led to the PhD that I actually ended up pursuing. So he's been pretty instrumental in kind of like helping me figure out some of the stuff that I'm interested in researching outside of the stuff that we research, because I research a lot about neoliberalism and colonialism in higher education. I look at systems. And so the conversations and arguments that I've had with him has been a pretty significant influence. Though I will say that my dissertation chair, Kimberly Grayson, has also been a phenomenal influence in my career as far as shaping my understanding of how those systems operate. And so she has been absolutely key for me. I think for me, I have to go back a little bit further. My background's in biological sciences. And so if I think back to really kind of what influenced me in my career, it was my undergraduate biology faculty. We had a good group of individuals where I went to school. You know, I did some conservation biology and I did some biological sciences with cell bio. And so everybody was really good about kind of showing how you can use the skills that you build in the sciences in any field and how those same techniques can be applied to many other fields outside of the biological sciences. So I actually got my master's in immunology and biology and microbiology, and then I went into education afterwards, and I've had an opportunity to do work in a lot of different fields, and I've been able to go back to those skills I learned from those individuals and apply it regardless of where I am working or what field I happen to be working with. That is wonderful. It's so great to have mentors and role models and people we admire in the work that we do. 
Okay, last of the getting to know you questions. What is your signature strength or trait? Or if you want to add to that, what is your most embarrassing strength? <laughs> well, I have never met a stranger. So I'm one of those people that I could probably talk to a wall if the wall looked like it needed some conversational interaction, <laughs> even if it was totally one-sided. It has been very useful as a professional development person, I have to say, because if you can't talk in front of a room full of people, you're probably going to be pretty uncomfortable. So I would say that is probably one of my strengths, but as many of my friends and my fiance has mentioned to me, the occasional overwhelming desire to speak can be a little overwhelming, I guess would be the nice way to say it. So I don't know if that's a strength or an embarrassing thing, but maybe it's a little of both. <laughs> Probably be a little unnerving to be stuck in an elevator with you. Yeah, I actually break the elevator rule. I will talk to people in the elevator. And so uh, I have had moments where I'll talk to someone and they're clearly like, I would like this to stop. I can read a social cue though, so it's fine. <laughs> How about on airlines? Oh no, airlines are like the one place I don't talk though. I'd immediately revert. I'm like, don't talk to me. I just want to listen to my audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Eric? Uh, I guess I would say maybe curiosity. And I just, like I said, I've been able to work in a lot of different fields from uh, law enforcement training to kind of the traditional sciences. And I always find things I'm interested in. And I guess that's a good and a bad thing at times because we'll do something for a while and then something comes up and it sounds really interesting and I want to chase that for a while and then something else will come up and I want to chase that for a while so sometimes I have a hard time just staying with one thing because there's so many things out there that are interesting but we live in a world where there's so much information out there that it's hard to look online or run on your phone now and and not see things that seem like they'd be fun to do or fun to look into but I would guess you also have the ability to connect dots between very diverse groups of thoughts and ideas. Yes, yeah, I think so. And that's kind of where, I, going back to the instructors or the faculty members who really influenced me, I think they helped to see kind of how you could apply uh, learning in any environment. But throughout the different careers that I've had to get to this point, I've always been able to take these pieces from different places and try to fit them together. And I think it's important to do that and think outside the box because you know, as we're looking at interesting problems or things that need to be solved, I think we get to a better place with solutions if we can kind of break out of the walls of any box and bring together multiple disciplines and multiple fields, uh, different ideas, and try to bring a new vision to the problem as opposed to seeing it the way it has been seen before. Very good. Very good. Okay, let's get serious. <laughs> yeah, we're moving into the serious section. I'm glad that each of you kind of expanded on your personality a bit and some background, because one thing we're really curious about is what it's like to publish together. So Brad has been writing and publishing his whole career, but recently in working together, he said, I'm going to do something I haven't done before, and I'm going to co-author something with you, but this is new territory for me. And so, and I'm excited, right? Because I get to work with Brad and actually write, but that process is something of writing together is something that we've worked through. Like, okay, now how do we do this? Step one. So we're curious, what's it like to publish together? Well, I think we found a pretty good method for it. I think it took 
us trying to work with one another and figure out what each other's strengths were and how they could be complemented within the research and the publishing end of it. But, you know, we found out kind of what works well for each one of us and what our strengths are. And it's allowed us, I believe, to be able to write material more quickly. And also, I think we had to work on a process of, you know, how you write to different audiences is different. Mm -hmm. And how you write for people who are reviewing manuscripts and the people who are likely the readership of those articles is different depending on who you're writing to and what the, the focus of that particular group is. And so I think it took us a little while to figure out what the best way to work together and, and write for a particular audience was. But after that got done, we've been able to write pretty quickly and get a lot of information out. Yeah, I would say that one of the things that took some time, first of all, we couldn't do this without collaborative document sharing. There's never just one file that operates like through email. We were using Google Drive, but also we had to kind of figure out how to meld our separate voices because we both have very different writing styles. The way I write is very different from how Eric writes, but what I think has kind of emerged is this kind of combination writing that it's kind of a nice complement of each of our strengths as far as a writing style goes. And then the other thing that has taken some time is figuring out like who wants to be kind of the subject lead or the author lead on a particular paper. That's usually interest-based, I think. Like Eric says, he has a lot of curiosities. Fortunately, the things that we're researching are in the system stuff that I'm interested in. So for example, a paper we're working on right now, I'm taking lead on that because it's more in line with where my research interests lie. But that is kind of been one of the things that we've really had to work on, but we've been working together for about five years now. So it took us some time, but we figured it out. That's wonderful. As you said at the beginning, it took some time to determine which audience you're writing for, what kind of manuscript it's going to be. Did you end up settling in just one place or do you kind of mix it up? Are you going for all peer-reviewed journals or what does that mix look like? It's all over the place. We've written quite a few peer-reviewed works. We have some that We've just released as Creative Commons licensed open access. We use Pressbook. So we have some like that. We have some that have been more informal. We've done some white papers that are meant for a very specific audience as far as moving it out of the academic language into something that, you know, anyone can pick up and understand targeting uh, legislators, things like that. So the other strength I think we have is we can change how we write based on the audience we know we're writing for. And so that has been Great. something that we had to develop. That's awesome. So before I ask this next question, I want to apologize to Tiffany because I'm going to steal something I think you were talking about earlier. And that is, I want you to define or describe open education. But I also would like you to do that in the context of a document that you did collaboratively with your students on how to be successful at Pikeville and how that process worked. You cheater, you went and found that too? <laughs> you have the same material. Okay, well, we have the controversy apparently. You guys are good. <laughs> No, the open education, when you talk about defining it, that that's kind of interesting. It's been a focus on a good half of the work we do together, mm -hmm. because when you talk about open education, you almost have to look at what the terms themselves are. So you have to figure out what does open mean and what does education mean? And I don't know that we really in the field think about these things as much as we should. When it comes to open, there have been some researchers that have looked and they've said open can be a lot of different things. It can be open 
can be free. Open can be the access and how things are accessed, whether it's material or even entire institutions. It can refer specifically to open educational resources or some of these things. So, you know, when we looked at it, one of the things we were actually doing was because our focus is professional development, and we're always trying to take material and say, we like theoretical development of topics, but at the same point, we want them to be useful to the people we work with, because that's where we live. If we believe in something, we want to be able to figure out ways that we can spread that and have that benefit to other people, not just ourselves. So when we were looking at open education, and, you know, we really saw it as being this very large umbrella that includes a lot of other things. Uh, some of those are institution-wide. Sometimes we think of things from a U.S. perspective, but when you think about kind of a global perspective on things, institutions can be open in terms of how they admit students and whether or not there are particular barriers to students even being able to take courses there. They can be open in their policies. We can have instructors be open in how they're teaching we can have uh, students be open, what they bring to the educational environment. So we see open education as being somewhat hard to define because it is so broad, but it includes all these elements of teaching and practice and, and the student learning and even how the institution itself functions. It's one of the reasons why we focused a lot on one particular term, which is open pedagogy. And I think that brings a good point to discuss that book you were referring to, because mm -hmm. it was the place where we were really trying to work with our faculty on ways that we can improve the collaboration and the engagement of our students by co-creating some material. Katie, do you, do you want to go into that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I know that you were saying that you wanted it kind of how we discuss it in context with our students, too, because that is a very different audience. And so with the students, the way the book is talked about is we talk about it as them kind of sharing their understanding of whatever particular thing they're researching, right? So you found the one that was essentially the survival guide for the University of Pikeville, I'm assuming. We just published volume two of that, which is now looking at responsibility. So like right. social responsibility and ecological responsibility and leadership and ethical responsibility. We did the first project, we ran that for three years, I think, total. And so now we're in year one of volume two. And the way we explain it to students is it's not oversimplified because we don't want to oversimplify the concept too much. But what it is, is we're trying to get them to understand that they are valuable contributors to the educational knowledge conversation, right? They have quality input even coming into college because they have lived experience. And so when we talk about this material with them, we talk about it in terms of sharing of information and what it looks like for information to kind of live beyond one particular instance or assignment with our faculty when we're introducing that. And this kind of goes to the PD side of things and really gets into the concept of open pedagogy. I'm not sure what your guys' experience has been, but for us, one of the things that we found is that particularly faculty who are non-academic faculty, right? So coming in as instructors or staff, they're afraid of certain terms. Like, so pedagogy is scary. And so we introduce it to them in such a way that it feels accessible. And I think that a lot of our research is really working on making sure that this field is available to them, right? You can do this. It's not as intimidating as terminology makes it sound. 
And maybe this goes back to that idea of the lack of shared definition of open education because of its ambiguity, people can find it difficult to break into. And so with that particular book, you know, the students are actually within our first year studies class working together and identifying in this case for the first volume, the survival guide, something that they didn't know about college that they wish that they did. And they would have to go collect information working as a group to put that material together. But instead of that just being a project that they maybe they present to a class and then after the class ends, they put it away, the faculty member puts it away and it doesn't live on. Now these things are all being collected into that press books being used for our future classes. So mm -hmm. future students and potential students are able to access that material. They can go back and look at these projects and papers that were put together by students that were in their situation not long ago and learn from their experience. And they're intentionally built into that curriculum and also prepping them for the next project for that course. And so to kind of bring it back full circle, they're asked to go look at the book at particular points throughout the semester for a variety of reasons, prepping for their own version of the project, but also, you know, the efforts the students have put in and talking about how to be an effective time management person, right? Like how to effectively manage your time. So they might go read a chapter that talks about time management. So there, the material is included back in from a scholarly perspective. Oh, it's time where we have to pause on the show. We'll be back next week for part two with Katie Williams and Eric Wirth. But for now, please go on over to our website, digitaltolearn.com with numerical two and catch some of the resources that accompany what we talked about today. Please also go ahead and like the podcast, share the podcast, and you can tweet about us at digitaltolearn.com and we're also on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you about future guests or just your thoughts on each episode. We'll see you next week on Digital Thank to Learn. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.